0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: To digging up ancient aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. To reclaim some water to an archaeologist, what are the better explanations out there? We are now on episode 49. I am Frederick, your guide into the world of pseudo-archeology. But this time, I am not alone. I have PhD candidate Grace Reinhardt McRae, the time-traveling archaeologist with me. We will learn about the Cathars and uh, about one of their influential personalities, Esclermonde of Foix. A woman that was very important among the Cathars and told to go back to the kitchen by the Dominican Order's founder Saint Dominic. Esclamante also got the nickname The Fox for her ability to avoid the um, Catholic Inquisition. Grace will also take us back to René Le Chateau where we will revisit and learn more about the buried treasure that's supposed to be hidden in this small quaint little French village. And some additional information can be added to our documentation after this. But remember that you can find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you can also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now that we have finished our preparation, let's dig into the episode. And... Then I want to welcome for the first time on a podcast, I think, Grace or the time traveling archaeologist. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks very much.
1: So you are a PhD candidate and mm-hmm. an archaeologist and a medievalist, and you yes. also do a bit of um, what is it, Renaissance clothing? I think uh, I've historical, seen.
2: yeah, historical, historical costume. In my yeah. uh, plethora of spare time.
1: <laughs> Would you maybe want to share a little bit about your thesis?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my PhD thesis is focused on um, the, the broadest stroke, really, is the use of myth and legend in heritage tourism. So I've taken a look at the southwest of France, um, which is Occitanie in modern French, or Occitania, in uh, Medieval French. And uh, this region is is really kind of the perfect microcosm of my case study because of the Albigensian Crusade and the Catars and the presence of a really kind of insane tourism campaign, uh, which has kind of stripped the history from the region and instead replaced it with a ton of mythology and legends. So when people go there, they're looking for aliens, they're looking for the Holy Grail, they're looking for the Da Vinci Code, as opposed to the actually this beautiful, rich history that is there and the fantastic archaeology that surrounds it. So um, it's kind of a microcosm of what I see. And I think a lot of people see happening Um, at various heritage sites, especially in the rise of film tourism, where people are kind of visiting sites for maybe the wrong reason or a more destructive reason. And they're not there thinking about the archaeology and the heritage and the history. They're there thinking about Mm. something completely different that's irrelevant.
1: So you will fit right into this show. (laughs) And the idea here is that we will discuss ancient aliens, and mm-hmm. we have a segment here on the Cathar. I haven't punished you by forcing you to watch this, but uh, you will get to listen to it at least. Oh, and um, let's see how, because they start everything quite simple and calm. So let's listen to how they open the whole segment to see if you have any comments on that. And then we might get into the Cathars and their history.
0: Villarouge-Terminasse Castle, Languedoc, France. This medieval fortress, dating back to the 13th century AD, served as the final holdout of the Christian sect known as the Cathars. In 1321, the last known Cathar perfectus, Gilhelm Bellabasta was burned at the stake here as part of the Holy Inquisition.
1: Do you have any comments I you looked a bit sceptical from the start? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: well, I've never heard uh, Virouge Terminés pronounced that way before. I've also never heard it called uh, the last kind of refuge of the Cathars before. They were pretty much at this point exterminated. They didn't really have any last uh, holdings since 1244, was kind of their final stand at a completely different castle uh, in caribou, which is in Duck. they're correct. (laughs) Um, But uh, as far as I'm aware, their their kind of stronghold in Ville Rouge fell far before that. Um, But they did get it correct that uh, Guillaume was the final perfectus burnt at the stake. Uh, That was the official end of Catharism. It was in 1321. So... Uh, 50-50 to start.
1: So if we um, rewind a little bit, who is mm-hmm. the Cathars that they are talking
2: about? Sure. So the Cathars are they're a Catholic a Christian heresy, which basically just means, I'm sure most people know this already, but it basically just means they don't follow the letter of the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the Cathars had some interesting ideas that aren't really all that different from a lot of other Christian heresies at the time. They're very similar to the Waldensians. You get some Lollard comparisons as well. Um, but the Cathars are interesting in their belief in not just one God, but two. So they primarily believed that the Bible took, was the work of, um, of two different gods. You have the God of Light, who was the God mentioned in the New Testament. And then you have the God of darkness, which was the God in the Old Testament. And one of their core beliefs was that humans, or people living on Earth, were all people who were actually in purgatory, because their belief was that, in actuality, a human soul was a genderless angel. And that angel, angelic spirit, belonged in heaven with the God of light, but had been trapped there on Earth by the God of darkness, And it was a human's job to live the best, most pure, most perfect life that they could. Uh, And they would reincarnate time and time again until they had achieved that perfection and could finally be free of their human bodies and instead return to that angelic spiritual being. So one of the interesting things about them is that they actually kind of, for a medieval religion, they were really equal when it came to the treatment of men and women, rich and poor, because of that belief of the genderless angelic spirit in the human vessel. So they allowed and encouraged women to be um, preachers and monks as well as men. And one of the things that gets us into our ancient alien theories is that they revered Mary Magdalene alongside all the rest of the apostles as well. And with Catharism, you—they're basically the proto-vegans. They—they they hated the thought of harming any living thing. Um, they wouldn't eat meat. They allowed the lay people to to eat meat and sort of, you know, sustain mm. themselves as they could. But um, in order to be a perfectus, or um, they're called bonfem or bonum—good men and good women—in uh, order to achieve that, you would have to basically live on a vegan diet and live in poverty and prayer a majority of the time. Yeah, I think that's the broad strokes of Catharism. <laughs> it's what we're looking at.
1: So uh, they sound a bit further ahead than maybe the people usually are viewed during this era. Mm-hmm. And I'm Listening to it, we get some um, almost like yeah, Scientology mixed into it. Have you yeah, seen that too?
2: I have. Yeah, I have noticed that as well. Um, and I should I should start as well by putting out a disclaimer here, is that I am not pro Qatar necessarily. Uh, I'm not saying this is the perfect religion or anything like that. Uh, I'm looking at the heritage they left behind because the mm. Long Duck region that they they flourished in was uh, at the time an un- autonomous region in the southwest it was not really connected to the kingdom of france it was not really connected to the kingdom of aragon they kind of they had a suzerainty agreement where the counts of toulouse and the counts of foix were occitan they weren't french they weren't spanish they were so- they were occitan which is basically an offshoot of catalan and basque um, individual kind of culture and the occitan people sort of embraced Qatarism because similarly, they gave the same, not exactly the same, but a lot more leniency with women inheriting, women in rule, women in power. And the Occitan lords didn't really seem to care what religion their citizens practiced as long as they paid their taxes. So you have records of Qatars, Christians, Jews, Muslims, everybody living kind of side by side and not really kicking up a fuss about it unless someone forgot to pay their taxes. So my focus a lot of the time is really more on the Occitan people and the way hmm. they are remembered through the Cathars because they are not really well remembered in any other way.
1: But the Cathar operated in a specific region or was this a religion that kind of spread throughout France or were they limited in their influenza sphere.
2: They actually they came from the east, so the theory is that they evolved from the Bogomils in Bulgaria, and kind of came from the east to the west. Um, so we have pockets of them in Italy, in northern France, in northern Spain, but where they really took hold and flourished was in Occitania because of that religious tolerance that the lords there allowed. Um, whereas everywhere else, it was really stamped out as soon as the first sign of it sort of reared its head. They
1: worked quite well with other religions, you say. Mm -hmm. Uh, How was this reflected in the society? Do we have any documentation around this? Or how can you see this in our historic records?
2: Yeah, we have historic records of of people all sort of living side by side. um, And we actually have several threats from the Pope threatening to excommunicate the Occitan lords if they didn't start you know stamping out the heretics that had taken hold um and more often than not those lords just kind of said yeah okay i'll i'll get right on that and then did nothing about it <laughs> at all so they were they were very the occitan people the lords were very independent of Anything really yeah they they just we have records of of people living in small Jewish communities uh, in the same Christian communities there are still actually some symbols carved on some medieval houses in a few of the smaller villages that include like the star of David and the mm. uh, crescent moon of Islam next to the cross uh, of Christianity to show that the people in that household were welcoming. So all of those other religions.
1: But were the Cathar in a position of power or were they more just part of the larger group in there? Because in the ancient alien show, they're depicted as uh, a quite strong force that was uh, combating the Pope's forces almost.
2: Mm -hmm. So it was much more popular among the lower class, among the peasantry. Um, mm. but it did gain some popularity amongst noble women, especially of the time. There's one woman in particular who I will I could talk for several hours just about her and her life. But um Esclermont de Foix was one of the most famous uh, Qatar bon femme. Uh, and she was actually on one of the council debates between the Qatars and the Catholics in a kind of a debate for the survival of Qatarism. She sat on the debate and argued against Saint Dominic for the ability for Catharism to continue. So that you did have a lot of powerful people begin practicing Catharism, um, but there were still just as many, if much more, Catholic lords who just didn't have a problem with Catharism.
1: But they were not part of the government of the region.
2: They were only because of the lords that that had converted to catharism but mm. again we see them cooperating just fine with their catholic neighbors and things like that uh, again one of the big tenets of catharism is peace and not harming any living things and that very much extends to to warfare uh, they didn't have any desire necessarily to go to battle outside of the usual territorial protection
1: uh, what was the name of the w- woman you brought up? My memory is a bit short. <laughs> Esclermont de Foix. That's a completely new name to me. And it's always interesting to mm. get the uh, women, especially a woman that seems to have taken, play, taken part of the uh, Catholic councils. Uh, would you maybe mm-hmm. shed some light on her? Because. That's not a story yeah. that's really brought up in, <laughs> in the ancient it's, alien <laughs> narrative. It's not a
2: story. I, I'm not surprised they don't bring it up in ancient aliens. Um, but it's not really a story that most people know or get told, even though it's an incredible story. No, it's, it's... so Esclermont is fascinating for a number of reasons, because she did what was expected of a noble woman at the time. She got married in her late teens, early 20s. She had six children. Um, She raised them to adulthood. And it was only after the passing of her husband that she began to look at Catharism. She'd always been sympathetic to them, but she began practicing herself, along with a few of her daughter-in-laws and all of her daughters. Uh, Her sons, some of them seemed to lean into Catharism, but most of them just seemed kind of supportive of it and remained Catholic in name. But her, with her daughters, she began forming these groups and having kind of these discussions with people, you know, introducing them to Catharism, going out and helping the people of the region and kind of doing so in the name of Catharism. And she became so prominent. She was really well-educated. She became so prominent that when it came time for this debate in 1207, she and her daughter, Philippa, were asked to serve with a lot of other Cathar perfect uh, perfectus men on this panel to debate against Catholic clergy. She was actually in her early 50s when this took place. And there is there is documentation which states that uh, St. Dominic actually yelled at her to go back to her bower because this was no place for a woman. And she she stayed stood firm and continued arguing that the most important thing here was that they be given a chance to practice and live. And after that, she became one of the main targets for the Crusaders. And they actually ended up calling her the Fox of Foix because she was never captured she managed to evade everybody coming after her Um, we believe she died sometime in the 1230s 1235 because she was last seen at a nephew's wedding and then never seen again
1: so uh, it's interesting that the um, go to the kitchen make me a sandwich argument have been (laughs) used for (laughs) what is it 800 years or something like that a long
2: Um, time (laughs)
1: I'm not surprised, actually, but so she was one of the last few influential people of the mm-hmm. Cathars, which is rather interesting. But actually, when I have read about it, she never pops up in the common sources, really, but she seemed mm-hmm. to have been quite an important character about it. Is it yeah. because this type of um, the research into the Cathar has been male-dominated, or is it because they want to look more about this heresy angle and maybe don't really talk about the people in general?
2: Yeah, it really depends on the sources that you're looking at. She doesn't show up in a lot of sources that are written in a more modern sense. If you look at the more original texts, then you'll see her mentioned a few times. And we have different records of her activity throughout history that does survive. You'll see a lot (laughs) that has been kind of brushed aside or she won't even be mentioned by name because of, I don't really know why. There's a lot, there's been a lot of undermining of women throughout history and especially in that region. My theory is that because the French Kingdom eventually took control of Occitania they kind of they they weren't there on that level of equality with women yet and so they mm. kind of wanted to downplay her involvement but actually where I found her most isn't in a lot of English sources a lot of a majority of it is in the French sources mm. um, which isn't accessible to a lot of people um, I would say probably a majority of people it wouldn't necessarily be accessible which is another reason why I'm so interested in talking about this and kind of getting it out there because English, for better or for worse, is a more universally accessible language and a lot of the information just isn't available yet.
1: That's a quite common issue among uh, several regions. For example, Mm -hmm. I've used to look into Vikings and there's a lot of research going on in the Baltic countries, Poland, Slavic speaking, but they speak or write it in their own language so Mm -hmm. it's not as accessible as everybody but it creates knowledge gaps among ourselves but it uh, it's good that you bring it forward and with well AI for better and worse we might be able to quicker translate (laughs) this type of research making it a bit more accessible which is an upside and we can discuss the utilization of AI and the backside. Mm -hmm to but um what do you see when we look at the tourism of these places if we go to your thesis that if we go to i'm sorry for my french here monsegur <laughs> or and you complain about the narrator's pronunciation already uh, <laughs> Ville Rouge uh, termnes castle there you go
2: already better than him <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's interesting to see how it's presented, because the big tourism package is that it is the Cathar country. So they want the association with the Cathars, very much so. Um, they have a whole chain of castles called the Cathar castles, which is what my thesis focuses on primarily, are these mm. castles. And I've been to all of them now and kind of seen the varying levels of how they portray the Cathars and how they kind of explain the Albigensian crusade and what happened here. And some of them do a fantastic job. Uh, Montségur, for one, is is a really great uh, interpretation of what happened. They have a stunning archaeology museum in the village down below, a really nice interpretation and visitor centre you have to climb for half an hour up nearly vertical mountain <laughs> to get there. <laughs> but you know, if you do go and you make the effort, there's, there's a memorial there um, because uh, for people who aren't familiar, Montségur is commonly called the last stand of the Cathars because that's where a good number of them, including Esclarmonde de Foix, three of her daughters and four of her grandchildren were killed mm. at Montségur because they fled to hide there. But 250 people were killed at Montségur, and there's a memorial to them there. But then you go and you look at other places, um, like the town of Béziers, where there was an enormous massacre. It's supposedly where we get the phrase, kill them all, God will know his own from. And Some high estimates say 20,000 people were killed there, but I don't think that's actually possible (laughs) given the population at the time. But we are looking at close to around 7,000 people murdered, whether they were Cathar or Catholic. And in this whole village, there is not one memorial to what happened here. So you, you get completely different levels in the tourism of what you're actually seeing. And so much of it has to do with myth and legend and this supposed treasure, or the Holy Grail, or the Ark of the Covenant. Da Vinci Code stuff, instead of actual history.
1: Is it because that seemed to be more uh, profitable? Or is it just that um, these packages sell better? Or have you looked into that part?
2: Yeah, with some places, it's definitely because it sells better. But I think with other places, it's just a general ignorance that uh, they just don't really know the actual history very well and so most people will push the the narrative of the treasure and things because it's more exciting you know it's more fun for the family instead of serious people wanting to learn about history yeah <laughs> makes
1: sense r- yeah it makes sense <laughs> I've seen the tour packages sold by many of these ancient alien uh, hosts uh, you can go and pay what is it 10,000 euro to go with uh, Van Däniken to Egypt and all of that. So Mm -hmm. it sells quite well. It does. Why do you think they selected to go with the Ville Rouge Termès instead of um, Montségur in this case? Because Montségur is the (laughs) thing that seemed to be repeated in most of the documentation. Is Mm -hmm. it maybe tourism aspect? Because I know that some regions try to sell in that come here and make your mm-hmm. alien show and, you know, get the tourism in there. Or is it just that yeah. there had something happened there?
2: So Honestly, for Ville Rouge, I think it's just because it's more accessible. Like I said, Montségur is, a, it's a hard climb. I, I'm a fairly fit person who's used to kind of doing these these climbs, especially with my research. And Montségur is hard. It's hard to walk up. You can't, if you have any kind of difficulty walking, climbing stairs, you would not be able to make it all the way to the top. So it could honestly just be that Ville Rouge terminez just has nicer stairs. You can drive up to it. Whereas with Montségur, you really have to be interested and dedicated to getting to the top.
1: Might be why they don't have any talking heads on location for that episode, but it makes sense that they shows what's accessible, to be honest.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, you do have the connection to this is where the last Qatar was burnt. That is true. Mm. Uh, that is the last recorded Qatar we have. He was burnt at Ville Rouge But it was so far after the bulk of what happened with the Qatars that it's just, it's interesting that they went there when they could have gone to so many other places. They could have gone to Aguilar, they could have gone to Caribous, they could have gone to Puy these are all much easier climbs, but still have that kind of vista and the intrigue as well. So it's interesting they chose Rouge.
1: I think it's because they wanted um, wanted a loss of something, because it's yeah. maybe more memorable. But um, again, part of my friend's uh, belly bust, uh, Guillaume, mm-hmm. was he part of the Inquisition or was mm-hmm. he... Um, punished by the Catholic Church. Do you know if yeah. there was an Inquisition in the Cathar regions? or?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, there's actually an entire book. I brought a couple of my books up with me for show and tell. <laughs> um, but there's an entire book about Guillaume and the, the Inquisition, which happened in a small town. And we have this book thanks to Jacques Fournier, who was the bishop in Pamier, and went on to become the Pope. So all of his papers, he took immaculate detail about the Inquisition. This is how we have a lot of the everyday person's story. And he took such good detail that then when it was preserved in the Vatican archives, we were able to pull it out and look and see day to day of what was happening and the Inquisition that uh, de Bilbasta went through along with a lot of other influential Cathars at the time.
1: So we preserved them in a way through the inquisition process, but do you have any original Mm. text preserved from the religion or is it just uh, accounts by Mm. other people?
2: Yeah, most of the documentation, the original documentation has been destroyed. What we have of Catharism is really sort of in that history is told by the victor viewpoint. Mm. Um, so we have those Vatican records and the Inquisition records. We do also get a couple of three different people writing at various points who are contemporary to the story. We have one uh, who is an Occitan troubadour, um, and he writes during the early part of the Albigensian Crusade. We have one who is a Cistercian monk with Bernard of Clairvaux, and he writes through the early part as well. And then we have someone who was born Occitan and raised Catholic, who kind of has an interesting middle ground perspective. And he comes in a little bit later and sort of ties up the story with us in a bow. So there are these three original texts um, and they have actually been translated into English and a few other languages as well. So those are out there and accessible. But as for original documents for the Katars, we we have almost nothing.
1: What do you know about Rex Mundi?
2: Rex Monday. oh, not a lot, <laughs> do tell.
1: <laughs> Let's uh, see what the aliens have to say about it.
2: Oh, Lord. It was
1: heresy to
2: believe that there is a force as strong as God. And the Cathars certainly believed that. The Cathars believed in an evil force, a force that was here to corrupt humans. The Cathars referred to this force as Rex Mundi. Rex Mundi means the king of the world. He is a, essentially a type of demon. Rex Mundi will lead you from your path with material temptations. Interesting. I have not come across that name in... In my research, I've been looking into the Cathars for three and a half, almost four years now, pretty exclusively. And that's not a name I'm familiar with. I know I've 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 heard little bits and pieces, maybe on the more esoteric side of things about Rex Mundi, but the. I think I think what they're trying to talk about is the whole idea that there are two gods. Yeah, there the god of of the New Testament and the god of the Old Testament. And I think they're probably trying to give the dark god, the god of the Old Testament, the name Rex Mundi. When in reality, he's it's just Satan. It's just the devil. <laughs> it would have been referenced as as the devil.
1: Yeah, the whole idea with just this episode that this is from is that uh, there is good aliens and uh, bad aliens and the bad aliens are those who cause mental health issues and uh, I guess the cathars in that sense uh, are a good um, use for this type of idea but
2: (laughs) I guess so I guess, you know, you take the people who already believe in two different deities and throw aliens at it, anything will stick. But, um, oh boy. Uh, n- no, uh, no, I don't think so. I've found nothing in my research to indicate aliens are part of any of this.
1: Oh, bummer. Here, I, I thought know. we had really <laughs> stunned the, the expert. Gun. <laughs>
2: No, um, I will say there is reference to aliens in this region. The mountain of Bougarach, the Peak de Bougarach, is a phenomena called kind of an upside down mountain Mm. because the geological layers are kind of flipped upside down thanks to the different tectonic plates. So when people first started going out there and noticing that, they were like, this mountain is upside down. It must have been lifted and turned upside down by the aliens in their spacecrafts. But it's just plate tectonics doing their thing. But people believe so strongly in the aliens of this region that in 2012, people... Do you remember when the world was supposed to end in 2012? Yeah, the I remember. Calendar? Yeah. Yeah. Weren't we all hoping? <laughs> <laughs> um, but so many people believed that Bugarach was where the aliens would come save them. That about 10,000 people gathered by this mountain in a village of 200 residents. And it scared the French uh, enough that they called out the military to make sure there weren't any mass suicides. So I actually, I have another book here called uh, Le Montan in Versailles, which is written by two journalists who had been sent to Mm. cover the 2012 phenomena. And then they revisited the idea and everything that had happened 10 years later, finding it all to be nonsense, of course. (laughs)
1: As usual, but you know that the the world really ended, but on a metaphysical level. Right, exactly. You just don't see it.
2: People just don't get it.
1: (laughs) And then they say, sell another course instead. But uh, have you seen in the ancient alien tours when you've been looking at the different pseudo or type of excursions?
2: Yeah, I have. I've actually encountered some of them in real life. Uh, when I'm at the sites doing my research, there will be these groups of people who kind of come up and just sort of sit and commune with the area around them, and uh, you'll get invited. I've been invited actually on a couple of them. These spiritual retreats to go and commune with nature in these sites and uh, and and speak to the higher powers that surround us. So yeah, it's it's. Have you taken them up on there. the offer? I haven't yet. I haven't, no. Um, Another interesting phenomena that happens in this region is people will come up to you and be very familiar because they're convinced that you've met in a previous life. And there's this belief in the region that everybody who moves there uh, was actually the spirit of a reincarnated Cathar moving home. So I've been approached by many people saying that we had past lives together (laughs) as (laughs) Cathars, which is interesting. It could be, if you find the right old lady, it could be a very good dating system. Because I've had an old woman approach me and say, you used to be married to my son. He's just over here. Come meet him. So she shot her shot. But I was sitting with my husband at the time. so. (laughs) It didn't work out for her.
1: Your husband didn't want to give you away.
2: <laughs> well, no, she. We were speaking in French, and he's he he doesn't speak French yet, so he was just smiling and nodding the whole time. <laughs> he was ready. He was ready to give me away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Last call says she dragged me up to. <laughs>
2: yeah, I know
1: <laughs> I think I will. Since we're talking about aliens, make your mm-hmm. life. A bit more spicy and interesting. And Ooh. we will go to a different region in France, uh, Rennes-le-Château. Okay. That, of yes. course, is famous for its treasures, its connection to the Visigoth, and a special church uh, there. We have talked about it in the past, but this is another of your research interests, as I understand it. Yeah, so and- I
2: actually did my master's on rennes chateau <laughs> <laughs>
1: so you know everything and if you don't know I it know we not. know that ancient aliens was right a lot on stakes here <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i will play you a little clip again
2: before marie's death she had promised to tell someone the secret i will tell you the secret and you will be rich beyond your wildest dreams And what she said was, the people of this village walk on enough gold to make them wealthy for a hundred years, and they have no idea. And the secret, she was never able to speak it after she had her stroke. So what was Marie talking about?
1: Well, what was Marie talking about?
2: (laughs) Uh, That's a great question, because we don't know. We still don't know. And the reason we don't know is because archaeology has actually been banned in Rennes-le-Chateau since 1965. And that is primarily because before then, a ton of treasure hunters had heard what Marie said and started digging into the village and under the mountain that it's on. Uh, so much so that the mayor said that it was beginning to look like Swiss cheese with all the holes. So I'm I'm very familiar with Marie. <laughs> Thanks to my research and my master's. And this whole thing is really fascinating because there is an actual mystery here. We actually have something that people could be focusing on and using as like an unsolved mystery and they completely miss it. (laughs) It (laughs) goes completely over their heads and instead they want to make it something completely different than it is. They want it to be fantastical. They want it to be the Holy Grail or Mary Magdalene or whatever it is. But the reality of it is that in the late 1890s, a priest in rennes chateau an impoverished town, which did not have running water or anything like that, was suddenly able to begin restoring the church, building himself an extravagant place to live, giving the village running water, increasing the, the, the standing of everybody in the village. Suddenly he had all of this money to draw on and we have no idea where it came from. We have no idea. There are a lot of different theories, one of which includes laundering masses, so selling more masses than he would ever be able to perform, which I do believe is part of the truth. Mm. But there's also a story that comes to us which tells of the first grant, This uh, the priest, Abbe Saunier, Beranger Sonnier. which if you're familiar with the Da Vinci Code, you'll be familiar with the Sonnier name because Dan Brown stole it. Mm. Um, but... Abbe Sonnier had gotten a gift from a wealthy uh, benefactor to replace the altar and the floor of the church. This is a 10th century church, which had basically been crumbling into disrepair since the 1400s. And he got this grant, this money to redo part of the church. And he was digging beneath the altar with two other men. And one of the men told his daughter the story of what happened. And she wrote it down. So he said that they were digging beneath the altar and they found a skull belonging to somebody who'd been buried there ages ago, he thought, in the Middle Ages. They found a carved stone, which is known as the chevalier or the knight's stone today. And they saw something glittering in the ground. And at that point, the priest told them, it's lunchtime, go take a break. I'll handle this. And when they came back, The skull and the stone were still there, but they thought they must have imagined something glittering. So we have this record of this being found. And then instead of saying, oh, he must have found a cache of treasure. He must have found a cache of this or that. People are saying immediately, holy grail, (laughs) holy grail, Ark of the Covenant, something phenomenal. And, you know, it wasn't an uncommon practice for the longest time, I'm sure you'll be familiar as a Viking scholar, for people to bury wealth in the ground, to people to kind of hide treasures or mm. off- or you know offerings of gold and things like that in the ground. It's not an uncommon thing. But nobody went there. <laughs> nobody thought, this place which was ravaged by a crusade, I wonder if maybe one or two of the lords buried their treasure beneath the altar of the church. They go immediately to something esoteric something beyond but when in reality there's like an actual concrete mystery staring us in the face (laughs) because we don't know
1: don't worry because i have (laughs) the solution to all your questions here
0: oh boy Baron Chassonier is a guy who goes in search of ancient documents who goes in search of certain specific knowledge in alchemical circles so what we have found in an awful lot of alchemical processes is the importance of gold. What happens next is that he begins to build a church. He builds it according to a plan. This plan is make contact with the divine. And so I think Sonia realized that certain metals could be transformed into something which truly made it a spiritual experience.
1: And then we know that um, the treasure is, of
0: course... This wealth that he had was part of a vast golden treasure that was kept underground in this church in a weird series of catacombs. These catacombs at Rensselaer Chateau were ancient. They'd been there long before the church had been built. And here's an area that's known to have these caves that were used by the Visigoths. Well, well, well.
2: Look at See? that, they've
1: solved it for us. Yeah, it's Visigoth <laughs> that he found either before or during he was building his church according to mm-hmm. the plan. Is this a story that you hear often with the Ren Chateau or was this new information for...
2: No, it is unfortunately very familiar. Those of you listening couldn't see the way I buried my head in my hands, but I'm very familiar with this idea of the church being purpose-built to commune with the divine and to unlock esoteric mysteries. Um, I'm going to ruin that for everybody right now, because we've actually got receipts of where Saunière ordered some of these artifacts, these pieces that he added to the church. They came from a local uh, church decorator in Toulouse, and they were all ordered from a catalog. They were already pre-made. <laughs> all he had to do was go through and pick which ones he wanted. And there are pieces that are found throughout a ton of churches in the southwest of France. So his
1: Master plan was basically from the post-order catalog. Exactly.
2: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And we have receipts. We have everything. We have the catalog that he looked through. We know we have him basically circling pieces that he wants. And we see how much he paid for them. So, yeah. Ancient aliens didn't get that one right, unfortunately.
1: Uh, Bummer, but do you think we will be able to... Because I've never actually heard that it was uh, banned with uh, excavations mm-hmm. in uh, this little town. Do you think they will lift it soon or is it just, we don't want treasure hunter here? How mm-hmm. is the tourism in this place? Have you looked into that or is this a little bit after your...
2: It is completely after my main area of focus, but it is... Uh, again, my. I did my master's thesis on it uh, mm. titled Heritage as a Hoax... <laughs> because they've really, the whole thing was created in the 1950s. The man who purchased the land for Marie de who was the Marie they were talking about earlier, hmm. um, he made this whole thing up to get tourists to come to the town. It was specifically created as a tourist trap, as a tourist plan. And he just so happened to have a treasure hunting group that he loved to bring around and show off things to. And he he wrote a bunch of documents about the history of le Chateau, which were then placed in the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale. And uh, kind of then when people went in looking for history about le Chateau, they found this account and pretty much nothing else. The Priory of Sion was founded in a similar way, which is, again, if you're familiar with Da Vinci Code, the Priory of Sion was reportedly started in 1099 in Jerusalem. But in actuality, Hmm. it was created in 1956 by a man called Pierre Plantard, who wanted to convince people that he was the rightful king of France through the (laughs) Merovingian line. And it it, it just spiraled so far out of control and people kept coming in and digging and would be digging up graves. They have a padlock on the cemetery now because people would go through and dig up graves. Mm. Um, but the whole thing just started as a tourist trap and it continues to be to this day. Um, and it's really unfortunate because there are some interesting claims. We may actually have those catacombs underneath the church, there are some GPR scans that show that it's possible, but I don't know that in my lifetime France will allow anyone to actually excavate. They're very much saying a blanket no right now to anything.
1: <laughs> All because someone was making up a little story, and the guy that purchased, if I don't remember very wrong, yeah. it's Noël Corbu, right? Exactly. Was a restaurateur in, in France. Mm-hmm. But something that's often left out in the whole discussion, you brought up a little bit about where he got some of the money, but um, this is based on my own translation of France documents. And Mm -hmm. as you know, my French isn't the best. He was uh, presented in uh, the ecclesiastic Court, uh, Mm Sanjer, and convicted, usually something Mm -hmm. that's Left out of this narrative is it again because you only find this source in French, or is it just not as interesting mm-hmm. because a uh, criminal priest might be even more better if you want to sell this story?
2: Yeah, I think it gets left out partly because of the language barrier, but mostly because it's just not as good a story it's it's a much better story if there are no criminal charges, <laughs> and it's just this priest with a massive wealth discovered from somewhere beneath his church and he dies with the secret. Uh, But yeah, in reality, he was taken to ecclesiastical court three times at the end of his life. Three different times. times. Three times. And I think that says quite a bit about the number of masses he trafficked in and the amount of money he was able to make. But then we do still have that little nugget of somebody did witness him uncovering something and yes. we we don't know what it is. <laughs> so there's still a real mystery. I don't understand why people aren't excited about that instead of making stuff up.
1: Because, I don't know, no people aliens. are... No aliens. Because in this segment they go off the race towards the end and I want to see if you have encountered <laughs> these claims. Uh,
0: okay. We know that people have said that Randall Chateau is a place for UFOs. We know people have reported time slips and people have said that they have had encounters with the devil. So there is definitely something about that area which suggests that for centuries very strange and bizarre things happen. (sighs)
2: Uh, No. (laughs) No, I haven't. I have not encountered any time slips or aliens or devils. I do know a couple of different reported encounters with the devil. That happened in the Middle Ages, but uh, those tend to be all over the world as well. We always have stories about people encountering the devil various places. So we don't see it any more here in this region than anywhere else in the world.
1: Hotspot for supernatural stuff in general. No,
2: not really. Although I do, I have spoken to a few different mediums in my research who say that that there is a lot of energy. In the region because of the atrocities committed during the Albigensian Crusade, which I would be more inclined to believe than anything about an aliens or the devil. When a lot of horror has happened in a place, I do think that you can kind of feel that, but not in like a spooky, there are ghosts looking over my shoulder kind of way. No aliens watching me from above sort of thing. Just a a heaviness that is just kind of there when you know bad things have happened somewhere. Mm. And I think that's just within our own psyche.
1: But according to the ancient alien theorists, as they usually say in the show, it's written, Mm. Terriblis est locus iste on the church, Mm. or this place is terrible.
2: Yeah. A common mistranslation, which is meant to invoke the terrible might of god not this place is terrible as in horrible bad things have happened the aliens are coming um, it's meant to invoke awe in god <laughs> nothing else
1: but this place to go back a little bit it was part of the cathar region or do i misunderstand you uh, yeah, because no. the french crusades are new territory mm-hmm. for me at yeah. least
2: so yes ukraine the chateau did exist During the time of the Albigensian Crusade. um, But unlike so many other villages in the region, it was not affected. The overlords of the area were Cathars, but though they lost their stronghold in that region within the first year of the Crusade in this specific part of the region. And so, Chenna Chateau remained Catholic and had a, a Crusader overlord from 1210 all the way through the the monarchy of France. So,
1: so the treasure could be Cathar, and that's how we. It could be the Cathar be. Uh, overlords that store their hidden or try to save their gold.
2: It could be. It, it honestly, it could be. It could have been that they knew that the crusaders were coming, and so they buried their gold beneath the one place they assumed that anybody crusading for God wouldn't attack the altar of a church. We have. That burial, the skull that I mentioned earlier that Sonier mm. found, um, it actually has an injury. Uh, it was pierced with a halberd So we know, thanks to uh, carbon dating, that it belonged to a man who is between his late 30s, early 50s, who died between 1280 and 1314. So that's around the time of the Inquisition. And when there would have been battles still going on, between the Crusaders and the Cathars, the Crusaders and the Spanish to the south.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, so it very well could have been something that was buried at that time. And and that could be the Cathar treasure or even a Crusader treasure, if you want.
1: Do we still have the stone and the skull, or do we just have hmm. one of them?
2: So we have the stone. That is in the museum at uh, La Chateau. So you can hmm. go in. And see a lot of the documents and the stone. It's all still there. And the skull is not on display. It was actually lost for quite a few years. About 50 years it was lost. It was actually just returned in 2014 um, and sent to different labs, one in Carcassonne and one in Toulouse for different uh, testing. And so I believe a group of anthropologists in Toulouse still have it.
1: Because, I mean, it would make sense if you want to hide something, to hide it with a body. As you say, there is a mystery, but not maybe necessarily Mm an alien mystery, as someone might want to say. Or was it common in French grave for the era to add gold? For example, treasures or things for the afterlife in the grave. Uh, Do we see the same in the region for christians or is this must it have been added do we see that type of grave uh...
2: we don't tend to see grave goods like that associated with catholic or christian burials and we don't actually have any Qatar burials to examine because if somebody was a known Qatar, their their corpse was actually uh, dug up and burnt as mm. a heretic along with any living catars that they had so Um, we actually only have two bodies of catars and they were not buried in, in a normal manner. It wasn't common to bury treasures like that with most Christian burials in the region, but it is common to hide things under altars. And it also, it could very well be that the treasure was added later because during the French Revolution, there was this time of turmoil when a lot of Catholic clergy were fleeing Spain or to Italy to try to avoid the revolutionary persecution. Mm. And um, we do have record from one of the previous priests at the church that he did bury some of his wealth at Rennes-le-Château before he left, and he died in Spain. So he was never able to come back and claim it. So it could very well be a stash from the late 18th century, as opposed to the 13th or 14th.
1: So we have a few different threads of what the treasure could be that nobody seemed to really care about, <laughs> interestingly, no, because that sounds impossible Nobody more... <laughs> seems
2: to be following. It sounds so much more plausible, doesn't it?
1: I mean, if the Catholic priest hide his treasure, uh, I mean, if I were a priest, I would put it somewhere where I could easily go and get it later, as in a mm-hmm. church sense, who expect that yeah. priest and even if the revolutionaries probably were a bit upset with the church, they were most likely Christians and would have probably more respect for the church than, you know, raiding the um, priest home, for example. They would just tear out everything nail by nail if they needed to, to find whatever they were looking for. So, I mean, it makes sense if you want to hide something in the church.
2: The logic is there. It's just a step that so many ancient aliens people kind of jump over instead
1: It's not connected to any sort of, I know that some crusaders or knights left uh, treasures and swords. For example, those Mm -hmm. surviving Battle of Agincourt left their swords in particular, shirts. It could not be connected to some sort of tradition. Or are you not familiar with that in this particular church? Yeah, I'm
2: familiar with that tradition in, in other places, but there is no evidence of that happening in this particular church. Um, I cannot understate how important this church was. There was no importance of this church whatsoever outside of the people living there. You know, At, at the highest population that we have record for, there were 300 people living there. Hmm. Uh, currently, there are 72 full-time residents. So it's not a huge church. It's not a big, important church in the area. Chenle um, Chateau is certainly not the biggest village in the area. It's a 10 minute drive to another much bigger village with another church. So I, I don't know, aside from Noël Corbu and his and his myth, what made people interested in this village, which is maybe why he did it to try to bring back some tourism money and encourage people to to come to Le Chateau again. But. It's it's just it's not that important. It's not.
1: <laughs> What's your favorite pet theory about uh, René Château? Do you have any? Oh, I, If I could decide what is yeah. true or that I want to be true, mm-hmm. what do I want it to be then?
2: I think, personally, with all of the research I've done on it so far, um, I believe that Sonier found some small stash of, of gold or silver that had been left there, maybe by the Crusaders, or maybe by the the, the priest from the seventeen hundreds, and I think he found that. And then he was also trafficking in masses, and he was also known to entertain people in his estate. Some some of the more famous entertainers and dancers at the time liked to come down and spend time with him there so i wouldn't be surprised if it was a combination of a small fortune in that gold from beneath the altar and then just scamming his way into the rest (laughs) that's that's what i personally think it is
1: then we're A little bit on the same page. I didn't know about the treasure under the altar. I didn't know that he was up Mm. three times. I thought it was just two times. But I think we will put an end here. And Grace, (laughs) if people want to hear more of you or learn more about what you're doing, where should they head off?
2: So I have a presence on TikTok and Instagram. Both are at the time traveling Creative. Or you can search the time-travelling archaeologist and find me just as well. Um always happy to answer people's questions on either platform about the time period, about heritage tourism. I go on a lot of rants about not looting and not doing graffiti <laughs> on various sites. Um, so, yeah, come find me there and say hello.
1: And if people want to read your master, is that possible? Do you have it online or should they just reach out to you? Do you have it on academia or any other of those sites, for example?
2: I haven't put it on academia yet. I am planning to do so soon. So you can keep searching academia until I actually get it up there. Or you can send me a message on either TikTok or Instagram, and I'd be happy to share it with you from there.
1: Awesome. And when do you think your PhD will be done? How much time do you have left?
2: I am projected to finish in 2025. Hopefully that will actually happen. (laughs) So um, I should be defending in the fall of 2025 or spring of 26. And then um, hire me.
1: (laughs) Definitely. And we hope to read about your... Research on the um, tourism trade there. Looking forward to it. But thank you very much for your time, Grace. And I hope that we uh, sync up one other time because it was very interesting to hear what you had to offer.
2: Thank you for having me. It was lovely talking to you. <laughs>
1: Again, thank you so much, Grace. And I just want to say that if everything goes as planned, the next episode will most likely be recorded live online, allowing you to ask questions if you have any. To get more info about that, keep an eye out on the social media where soon more info should be. Follow. Now, until then, please spread the word by leaving a positive review on platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or, even better, among your fellow trench dwellers. For more information about me and the podcast, check out diggingupancientalians.com. There you also find an extensive list on sources and resources and reading recommendations for those eager to expand their knowledge and on the subject matter on the episode page. If you Want to support the show? You can head over to patreon.com slash aliens. Or if you want to get the most out of your book, head over to the archaeologicalpodcastnetwork.com where you will get a ton of bonus content, slack channels and ad-free episodes. That membership covers every show that's uh, within the network, so you get a great amount of content for your hard-earned money. If you want to contact me, It can be done through most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or if you want to write that email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. Sandra Martelor created the intro music and our outro is by the band called Tralskruv, who sings their song Folie Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science.